Okay, Romans chapter 1, I will again, and this will probably be the last time I read through these verses, verses 1 through 17 of chapter 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing, I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if, by some means, now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. All right, so here we are back in Romans 1. And last week we did a sort of a sprint from Verse 5 all the way through verse 13, we covered eight whole verses last week, and that was indeed truly a sprint. But then now I think we're going to go through a little bit of a slowdown as we go through verses 16 and 17 in a little bit. But just to finish off that section. um, So again, uh, recall Romans is a letter. And in this letter, you see a lot of what you would normally see in a letter during this period of time. You would see a greeting. And then a prayer, which is what we're in here, verses 8 through 15, is sort of like a prayer, sort of like a little bit of a missionary uh, report, how Paul desires to come to Rome and how he desires to uh, be encouraged by them and by their, our, their mutual faith together between him and, and the Roman church. And when we talked about that, we talked about how Paul, though a very mature Christian, uh, some might call a super Christian, He did not see himself as one who could not learn from other Christians, which is a very good attitude to take in one's life. You know, we are never too mature in our Christian walk that we cannot learn something more. And that's what Paul said. Paul would write later in the letter to the Philippians that he desired to continue to run the race, knowing that he had not reached perfection, knowing that he had not reached the finish line. He says he presses on. He he, pushes forward. It's this running language. It's sort of like if you're in a marathon and you see the finish line, he wants to then make a strong finish uh, toward the finish line. And that's where we kind of left off here on verse 13, where he says, 
how he had planned to come to them often, but was hindered. And we looked a little bit in Rome, or sorry, in Acts chapter 16, where on Paul's second missionary journey, how he got directed to go to Macedonia and to Philippi, how it said in two different places that the Holy Spirit hindered him. How he desired to go to one location, it says, well, the Spirit hindered us. And okay, so we decided to go to another location. It says the Spirit prevented us there. And then he got a vision from God. So all of this, again, being, you know, as we talked about how it's sovereignly orchestrated by the providence of God, how Paul says he was hindered until now to arrive in Rome, but he does hope to get there sometime in order to bear some fruit among them also. So now as we look at verse 14, Paul here again talks about his obligation, how he says, I am a debtor, both to Greeks and to barbarians. That word debtor, you know, implies exactly what it means. He's a debtor. He feels like he is, he's owed some, he, he owes something to somebody. And, and this is, again, this part of Paul's call to be an apostle to the Gentiles. So he feels that it is his purpose in life, his duty, his obligation to present the gospel to as many people as he, as he possibly can. Remember in verse 1, he says he is a slave or a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And a slave, if you, you know, if you take the true sense of that word, has no choice in where the master sends him. He must obey. Paul must obey the command of Christ to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And here, uh, here this reinforces this idea. He is under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians. Now, this phrase, Greeks and barbarians, in the Jewish mind, well, in the Jewish mind, there is only two people in the world, right? You're, you're a Jew or you're not a Jew. So you're a Gentile. The, gen, the word Gentile just means of the nation. So you're either one of the the chosen people, or you're everybody else. In the Greek mind, you are either a Greek or you are a barbarian, okay? You are either someone who is civilized, you, you are Hellenized, that's the word, you know, the Greek word for Greek is hel- you know, Hellenization. You, you, you get the Hellenization of the world when uh, Alexander the Great, uh, the son of Philip of Macedonia, conquered most of the known world at the time, and you had this giant Greek empire. Well, he... Pr- pushed Greek principles, Greek philosophy, Greek culture on the world. This is the Hellenization of the world. So if you are not part of this Hellenization process, you are a barbarian, you are an outsider. So he says he's called to be an apostle both to, to Jews as well. You know, he, he, he will say that later. But here's a debtor to Greeks and barbarians. In other words, he's a debtor to all kinds of people. That's all he's basically saying. He is a a, a debtor to both the wise and the foolish, those who are learned and those who are not learned. So just as we said, you know, just as the Jews saw everybody's belonging to two groups, so too the Greeks had a similar worldview. In other words, Paul is not to discriminate. That's the whole point he's trying to get here. Paul is not discriminating to whom he proclaims the gospel. He's not going to go and say, Okay, well, you're not worthy, so I'm not going to bother. Or you're probably not going to believe anyway, so I'm not going to bother preaching the gospel to you. Oh, you look like you might be receptive. I'll preach the gospel to you. That's not Paul's perspective. That's not Paul's game plan. Paul preaches the gospel to whoever he comes across. Jew, Greek, Greek, barbarian, doesn't matter. It goes out to all people, regardless of race, regardless of class, regardless of ethnicity, whatever. 
And then here in verse 15, Paul says he is eager. As much as is in me, I am ready. I am eager to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome. Now, it's an interesting question here. It's like, why? Why does he want to preach the gospel to people who have already had the gospel preached to them? Why does he want to preach the gospel to believers already? Because the gospel isn't just for the unbeliever, right? That's what we believe. We believe that the gospel is not just for the people out there. It's also for the people in here as well. It is for the believer too. In fact, you could probably make an argument that it is the believer that needs the gospel more preached to them. Because we're so prone to forget the promises. We're so prone to forget our own sinfulness at times. We need this constant reminder that we also are saved by grace through faith in Christ. And not just our salvation, not just our justification, but also our sanctification. It is also through faith. We are justified by faith. We are sanctified by faith. It is from faith to faith, as we'll see a little bit later in verse 17. We need to be continually reminded of all that Christ has accomplished for us in the gospel. Just consider these verses from Romans 6, 4. You don't need to turn to these. I'll just read them for you. But in Romans 6, 4, Paul writes, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This idea of walking is a metaphor that Paul uses very often to talk about how you live your life, how you conduct your life. Your walk, And he says, you must walk in newness of life. And this is a walk that is by faith, as he will say later on in 2 Corinthians. We walk by faith, right? Not by sight. Problem is, oftentimes we walk by sight and not by faith. We walk by what our eyes can see and we don't trust the Lord enough, right? Romans 8, 4. He writes that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk According to the flesh, according to this way of living, according to uh, this world view, but we walk according to the spirit. And again, that walking according to the spirit is, is a walk that is emphasized and is empowered by our faith. Second Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We are new creations. We are new creatures in Christ. And we are sort of, in a sense, part of the new creation that will come when Christ comes at the end of the age. It will come in fullness where the whole heaven and the earth will be remade and renewed. And it is, again, a walk by faith. And then finally in Galatians 5, 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. So it doesn't matter whether you have the sign of circumcision or not. In other words, it doesn't matter if you are Jewish by ritual or non-Jew. What matters is that you are walking by faith through love. That's what Paul is getting at here. The Christian life is a life that is uh, marked by walking in faith. And this faith is built up by the proclamation of the gospel. The more the gospel is preached even to believers, the stronger our faith becomes. Okay, now let us now turn to 
Romans 1, 16 and 17. If you remember a few weeks back when we started this study, we mentioned that Romans 1, 16 and 17 form sort of like Paul's thesis, Paul's theme statement for the book of Romans, where he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, also for the Greek, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And from this, we uh, spoke about how the Romans is really a detailed exposition of the gospel, what it is, what it means for us, and how we are to live in light of it. And here, he's, he's giving you sort of like the nuts and bolts of the gospel, and how it's going to play out throughout the rest of Romans. Romans is an exposition of the gospel. The gospel is a word that just means good news. You know, we get the word evangelical from it or evangelize. It's euangelion. That's the word in Greek. It just means a good message or a good news. And this good news is here where he says in verse 17, for in it, the gospel, you see the righteousness of God revealed. That's what the good news is. It is a revelation of, of the righteousness of God. Now, I think we need to take a moment to unpack this concept of the righteousness of God. Again, the Greek word for righteousness here, dikaiosune, it carries the meaning of several things. It has three general meanings. It could have a meaning in the sense of a practice of judicial responsibility. In other words, you want your judges or you want people to judge one another with justice with equity, with fairness. So that's the sense, that's one sense of the word righteousness. Also, it has, it carries another sense in which it is a state uh, which focuses on redemptive action. So we are righteous. This in, in, in this way, it's sort of how our standing is before God. We are either in a state of righteousness or we're not in a state of righteousness. And then the third kind of sense it carries is in behavior or the characteristic of upright behavior. We act up with uprightness. We act with righteousness. So it carries all these sort of nuances and meanings are carried in this word righteousness. Now in the Old Testament, one idea of righteousness is formed in the sense of a relationship, both between God and man and between man and man, or between humanity and God and between human beings themselves. This idea of righteousness is formed in relationship. So between man and man, righteous, righteousness is action which conforms to the requirements of the relationship and in a general sense promotes the well-being and peace of the community. So if we deal with one another fairly, if we deal with one another with equity, if we deal with one another justly, then we have a good, harmonious relationship in the community. So this idea of righteousness between people. Now when you look at it between man and God, then righteousness implies a correct relationship to the will of God, which was particularly expressed and interpreted by Israel's covenant with God. So then righteous action, that is action which flows out of God's gracious election of Israel and accords with the law of the covenant. So the covenant, the law was given for a way for human beings to relate properly with God and also properly with one another. You've got the two tables of the law, right? If you take the Ten Commandments, the first four talk about how we are to relate with God and how we are to have a right relationship with God. And then the last six 
how we are to have a right relationship with one another. So just some verses from the Old Testament here. In Deuteronomy 6.25, it is written that it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. So there again, this idea that righteousness is, is a life lived according to the commandment of God. And then from Ezekiel 18, verses 5 through 9, I'm not going to read the whole section, but it says, if a man is righteous and does what is just and right, if he walks in my statutes and keeps my rules by acting faithfully, he is righteous. He shall surely live, declares the Lord. God himself is righteous and he can be counted on to act in accordance to the terms of his relationship with Israel But we are to live according to God's rules. Also, God is a righteous judge who acts on behalf of his people. And because of this, you can kind of see a mingling or conflation of the notions of righteousness and salvation. God is a righteous God who saves and vindicates his people. He defends their cause. He delivers them from wicked schemes, the wicked schemes of wicked men. So that's righteousness in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, righteousness carries with it the sense of, again, conformity to the demands and obligations of the will of God or the so-called righteousness of the law. Again, in Galatians 3.21, Paul writes, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? No, he says, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. In other words, If you read Paul, sometimes you can kind of sense that maybe he's got a negative feeling toward the law, and he doesn't. He says the law is good. Here he says, certainly not. The law is not contrary to the promises of God. Later on in Romans 7, he'll say that the law is holy, righteous, and good. It's not the law that's the problem. What's the problem? It's us, right? We can't keep the law. That's the problem. The problem is if we try to earn or merit righteousness before God by keeping the law, that's what Paul says, using a German word, is verboten, right? That's what he says is you're not going to get it this way. You can't do it this way. We'll talk about this in a second. But it's not the law that is the problem. Now, while at times in the New Testament we see that we could see the righteousness of men spoken of favorably in the sense of if you think of in Luke chapter 1, where you read about the, the parents of John the Baptist, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they are said that they, it's said that they are righteous, that they were righteous people that, that did the will of God. Or Simeon, later in Luke chapter 2, again, talks about he was a righteous man. doesn't mean that he was perfectly living in accordance to the law of God, but in a sense, this idea of faith, we're going to get into this in a little bit, this idea that even Old Testament saints were, for, were justified by faith in God. They were considered righteous. Abraham believed. This is the argument Paul's going to make in Romans 4. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. These saints were spoken of as righteous, not because they perfectly kept all the commandments every single day of their lives, but because they believed, they had faith in God, and it was reflected in their obedience to God flawed though it was. Now we know that all men in the end fall in their attainment, fail in their attainment uh, of righteousness according to the law. And then, so then our righteousness then can become 
unrighteousness. When we try to obey the law as a means to obtain merit before God, then our righteousness will become unrighteousness. In contrast to unrighteousness stands the righteousness of God. So now we're going to look at this term, the righteousness of God. It's got two senses, a subjective and objective sense. The subjective sense speaks of not only God's righteous character by which he deals with people uh, with equity. So basically when we say the righteousness of God in a subjective sense, what we're saying is God's righteousness, his character, his holiness, his justice, his fair dealings and righteous dealings with people. Now, when we look at it from an objective sense, the righteousness of God is that which is required of us to have a good standing or right standing with God. It is the righteousness that he requires of us, his creatures, which, again, that righteousness is spelled out in the law and which, of course, because of the fall, we cannot obtain. Now, we kind of hinted at this a little bit. I want to look a little bit at the law of God. Um, where we said that the righteousness of God is laid out, it is, it is spelled out specifically in the Ten Commandments. So in the law of God, the Ten Commandments, the law is a reflection of God's moral character, it is a reflection of his righteous character, it is a reflection of his justice. They are not just arbitrary, it's not just an arbitrary list of do's and don'ts. It wasn't like God was up there in heaven, and Moses, he says, okay, call Moses up to the hill and we're going to give him the laws of, well, what should we give him? I don't know, how about, you know, obey, you know, honor your parents, okay? How about not killing any? These aren't just arbitrary rules that God just made up on a Tuesday, okay? These are laws that reflect his character, and he wants his creatures then, made in his image, to reflect his character as well. Which is why when our Lord Jesus Christ summarizes the law, what does he summarize it as? He, he boils it down to two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The law is not arbitrary. The law is how you show love to God and how you show love to your neighbor, right? If you love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then you're not going to have any other gods before him. You're not going to take his name in vain. You're not going to worship graven images or idols. And you're certainly not going to profane the Sabbath day if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if you love your neighbor yourself, you're certainly not going to kill him. You're not going to steal from him. You're not going to covet his things or her things. You're not going to lie about them in court. And you're, not, and you're going to respect the proper authority structures in society, whether it's children to parents, whether it's people to the civil magistrate or whatever. It's just the law of love. This is, remember, again, in John in 1 John 4, 9, John says that God is love. That, that love is something that is so much of the essence of God that you can almost say that God is equal to love. Now, it's not, that's not what he's saying, but the heart of God is, a, is, is the heart of love. You see this love in the Trinity. For God, you know, God loves his one and only begotten son. This, and, 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 that's, and then the spirit is also there. That you have this relationship between the Trinity. You have a love for God for his creatures that he created in his image. And this is then this law then is just reflecting the love of God in our hearts. Now, this is the standard. The law of God is the standard. It is the benchmark. And to be holy and righteous before God, we must score 100% on this exam. 
Okay, 99.9 will not make it, 100%. An example I like to use is, let's say you're a baseball player, okay? And you go up the first day, you go up to bat, you go four for four. So now your batting average is 1,000, it's perfect. You go up the next day, you go three for three with a walk. Okay, your batting average is still 1,000, you're perfect. The third day you go up, you go three for four. Now your batting average is nine something or whatever, okay? Now, it doesn't matter if you went 1,000 the entire season, you're no longer perfect. Your batting average is flawed because you have that one out, okay? Now, if you take it in a real-life baseball, only the best baseball players are only you know, successful about 33, 34% of the time. That's the best, okay? So here, the law of God, it, re, it requires 100% in this examination, now, something else we're going to look at real closely here is this concept of works of the law. It doesn't show up here, but it's going to be something that you'll, you need to understand what the works of the law is when you're reading Paul. It's going to come up in Romans. It comes up in Galatians. It comes up in a lot of Paul's writings. This idea of works of the law. This phrase has generated a lot of discussion in theological circles, particularly surrounding some Controversies such as the new perspective on Paul. I don't know, has anybody here heard of the new perspective on Paul? Okay, you're probably the be- better off for it. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's, it's a, well, it is a new perspective on how to understand the Apostle Paul and how he understood works of the law. We're not going to go into a detail here, but all I'm just saying is that this phrase, works of the law, is at the heart of that controversy and it generates a lot of discussion. But the general thrust of this phrase, works of the law, is that of attempting to earn a righteousness through our own law keeping. So whenever you see works of the law, Paul is trying to get across this idea that works of the law is our attempts to earn righteousness through law keeping. This is what Paul emphatically denies in Galatians 2.16, a great verse. Where he says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So in that one verse, Paul mentions the phrase works of the law three times. And he emphasizes that you cannot be justified by works of the law. Now, You can't be justified by works of the law. Now, let me say it again. You cannot be justified by works of the law. And in case you forgot it, you cannot be justified by works of the law, only by faith in Christ. And later on in Romans 3.28, again, he'll say, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. In other words, you cannot be justified. You cannot earn a right standing before God. You cannot be declared righteous before God by works of the law, by your own law keeping, by your own attempts to keep the law. Now, Paul is going to develop this much more in detail in Romans 1.18 through the end of chapter 3. But the main point is this, in case you forgot what I said just five seconds ago. No one is able to keep the law to the degree that merits a righteous standing before God. No one. That's going to be the thrust of Paul's argument from verses 18 through the end of chapter 3. No one is righteous before God. Everyone is sin. We have all sinned and fallen short 
of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. Now the reason why we are not able to keep the law and merit a right standing before God is for three reasons. One is we inherit the guilt of Adam's sin. When Adam sinned in the garden, that the guilt of his sin is passed on to all of humanity, to all who are in Adam. Paul will make this, this, uh, this argument in one of his letters, too, where he says, in, now the, the true, you know, remember how I said that the Jews thought that every, you know, there was Jews and then there was everyone else, and the Greeks were like, no, there's Greeks, and then there's everyone else. Well, the real, you know, the real dis, uh, distinction here is between those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. That's the real distinction in humanity. And those who are in Adam, we inherit Adam's guilt by, by, uh, by natural birth. It's not something, I'm not saying it's genetic, okay? I'm not saying it's like passed on, like blue eyes are passed on, or, or blonde hair, or, you know, tall stature is passed on genetically. Um, it's just, it is a, a function of natural generation. This guilt is passed on. We also inherit a corrupt nature from Adam. So when Adam sinned, he fell. And then it's interesting where when you read in Genesis, um, in Genesis 5, it talks, you know, you see the first of the genealogies in Genesis. It's just this list of names and all these names. And one thing that keeps being repeated is so-and-so lived so many years. He begat this person and then lived this many more years. And this is, and then he died. And that phrase, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died, is that's that's a running theme through through uh, Genesis five, and it shows that you know the wages of sin is death, right? You know, but another interesting thing is whereas Adam was created in the image of God in Rome in Genesis five, it says that Adam had a son in his own image, Seth. In other words, in his own fallen image, he bore a son. We inherit that corrupt nature from Adam. And then thirdly, the third reason is we actually commit sins. We, because of our guilt, because of our corrupt nature, then we actually commit sins that increase our guilt daily, as the Heidelberg Catechism says. We daily increase our guilt by our sin. Now, we know that there were those uh, in time of Jesus in particular, the Pharisees, who thought they could achieve righteousness by works of the law. They thought that they could follow the law and then in order to sort of in fact, it was said of the, the Pharisees that in order to keep the Sabbath, so in order to keep the fourth commandment, they came up with 600 plus laws on how to keep the Sabbath. That's insane. Okay, <laughs> I'm just saying that's that's an insane level of nitpicking and detail orientedness. It's like, okay, well, how do we keep the Sabbath? We, I'm going to give you a list of 617 laws. You follow those, you're okay. You're like, oh my goodness, this is what kind of list is this? Okay, they thought they could achieve righteousness by works of the law. In fact, Paul himself, who was at one time a Pharisee, said in Philippians 3, 6, when he's talking about his past performance, when he's talking about his own life in the, in, in, before Christ, he says, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. I was blameless. Again, not perfect, but I did everything the law required of me to do. What the law required me to do, I did. I followed those 617 commandments. I did everything. And then later on he says, and now I think that's garbage, right? I give it all up. I willingly lose all of that to gain Christ. 
Now, the theological reason why we cannot earn or merit righteousness by works of the law is due to our corrupt natures or total depravity. That's what we believe in the Reformed Church. That's one of the five points of Calvinism. It talks about how we are totally depraved. And I know a lot of people misunderstand this phrase to mean that, well, that, you know, total depravity means you're as bad as you can be. That's not what it means. It just means that in our whole being, we are corrupt to the core. We are corrupt to the core. There's not a part of us that is redeemable. This is the, um, in other words, we are incapable of performing an obedient act according to the law that is not in some way tainted by sin. We can perform outward actions that look and appear to be in accordance with the law, but then you have to check our motives. Why are we doing it? With what heart are we doing it? Which is why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount uh, makes this point when he says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. In other words, okay, you said I haven't killed anybody, good for you. How about your heart? Check your heart now. Have you ever been angry with somebody? Have you ever insulted somebody? Have you ever said you fool or whatever the equivalent would be now in our days? Have you ever done that? You're guilty of committing murder in your heart. Likewise, he says the same thing about adultery. He says, okay, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Good for you. Now, do you have lustful thoughts in your heart? Do you lust after someone who is not your spouse? Same thing can be said of anything else. And then the 10th commandment itself, you shall not covet, is not something you can measure. You can't, you know, no one can tell if I'm coveting, you know, Fred's pickup or something. It's just, it's just, it's in my own heart, right? Now I may say, you know, Fred, you have a wonderful pickup and I'd really love to have your pickup. You know, he may say, oh, would you like to take a ride in my, well, anyway, but the point is you can't see coveting in my heart, right? That's the point. Obedience to the law is more than just outward conformity to the law. It requires of us perfect submission in our hearts. It requires that whatever we do must be done out of perfect love to God and perfect love to neighbor. And this leaves us in a sticky wicket, to say the least. Well, for any golfers out there, you are in the deep rough, okay? You are in the deep rough, and you have no chance of making par at this point. All right, that's the background to verses 16 and 17. But anyway, verse 16, Paul begins by saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, this flows out of verse 15, where he tells the Romans that he is eager to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome. Now, Paul's not ashamed. He's not embarrassed by the gospel. Why is that? Because, as he goes on to say, it has the power of God to salvation. The gospel has power. And we'll look at that, well, probably be next week now at this point. But the gospel has power. And, 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 uh, and this is why he is not ashamed. It is very easy for us to be ashamed of the gospel. And the reason for this is simple, because the gospel is a message. It is words. It is a proclamation. It is good news, to be, to be sure. But just speaking this message oftentimes doesn't seem enough, right? You know, you, you come up with someone who is hard-hearted. You, you, you meet a hard-hearted person in your life, and you, you present them the gospel, and you've just maybe, maybe this is me, but maybe you feel in your heart, it's like, these words don't seem to be enough. I need to convince this person of the truth. 
I need to show them. I need to berate them and show them how much they're mistaken. Because it doesn't feel like I just say, Jesus died for your sins. If you will believe, you will be saved. Is enough. We can be ashamed. There are a lot of problems in the world. All, all have sin as a root. And the message, of, the, the message that a Jewish man died on a tree 2,000 years ago just doesn't seem relevant to cure many of the problems we all face today. So we can be ashamed. This takes us back to our discussion of Paul's two-age paradigm. What the world sees as foolish is really filled with the dynamic power of God unto salvation. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.18, The word of the cross, the gospel, is folly. Is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So to the unbelieving world, this message of a Jewish man dying on a tree 2,000 years ago is foolishness. It's foolishness to the hard-hearted person, which is why it's not just the speaking of the message. It has to come in power, and the power is not in us. The power is not in our persuasiveness. The power is not in how we present it. It's not how we lay out our arguments. The power is in the Holy Spirit who takes those words of the gospel and uses them to penetrate the hard heart of the person and bring new life to them. The mindset on the flesh, the mind glued to this age, doesn't see the gospel as a message of power. It appears to them as weak. It appears to them as foolish. And when we fail to see with eyes of faith the power and the message of the gospel, it too can cause us to feel shame. In moments of doubt, we can see that the gospel message is weak and foolish, and thereby we are ashamed to share its power. But notice that, again, like I said, the power isn't in us. It is in the gospel. It is it. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. It is the gospel that has power. This is a message the world needs to hear. Our world is going to hell in a handbasket. We see it in the news with the riots and everything going on. There's a lot of ill in the world. There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of suffering. And this is just in our country, not to mention other countries that aren't as fortunate as the United States, where there's a lot of evil in this world. There's a lot of evil in this world. And it desperately needs a powerful word of hope and change, not in the political sense, not in Obama's hope and change, but hope and change that comes from the gospel. So this idea of power here, where it says the the gospel has power, in it is the power. This word here, power, dunamis, It's the same word from which we get dynamic, dynamo, even the word dynamite, you know, but it's not to say that the gospel is dynamite. But the idea is that the gospel has an inherent power. That's what this word speaks of. It talks about something that is inherently powerful. Notice again, you know, the works of the law, you know, the works themselves have no power, which is why, you know, the works of the law cannot save. But the gospel has a dunamis. It has an inherent power. To save. The power of the gospel changed a zealous and fervent persecutor of the church into its greatest proponent. The gospel did that. The power of the gospel takes dead sinners and makes them alive in Christ. The gospel does that. The power of the gospel brings spiritual regeneration and kindles faith in the heart of the hardest sinner. The gospel does that. 
Paul will later write in Romans, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That is the gospel. Romans 10, 17. There's nothing to be ashamed of in the gospel because the power of the gospel is, is the power to save. And the only reason we feel shame is because our own faith is weak. It is the weakness of our faith. It is the fact that we do not see with eyes of faith the power of the gospel. Now also note that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, literally to all the believing ones. The gospel isn't limited by race. It's not limited by religion. It's not limited by gender, etc. It is for everyone. In other words, the gospel has a universal reach. And the reason the gospel has a universal reach, because sin is a universal problem. We all have sin. So the gospel is for everyone. There is no one who isn't infected with the virus of sin. And consequently, there is no one who isn't in need of the gospel cure. When Paul says to the Jew first and also the Greek, he is saying that the gospel came first to the Jews, but it also extends to the furthest reaches of the world. Again, recall the Great Commission. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, all nations, not just the Jewish ones, (laughs) all nations. In Acts 1.8, the ascending Jesus tells his disciples the plan for the kingdom of God. He says, and you shall be my witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. Begins here in Jerusalem and then spreads out and spreads out and spreads out. And that's exactly what you see in the book of Acts. That's the plan of the book of Acts. If you look at the book of Acts, the gospel first started in Jerusalem and then it spread out to Judea, and then it spread out to Samaria, and then by the end of the book of Acts, the gospel has spread out to the entire Roman Empire. 30 years. 30 years, who knows how many thousands of people came to faith. One of the biggest revivals you will ever see in the history of the world. To the Jew first and then to the Greek. The gospel was promised first to the Jews as they were the vehicle of salvation to the world. The promises were made to them. The prophets were given to them. The Messiah was born from them. But it was never meant to be a Jewish-only message, but a light to be shared with all humanity. A light to be shared with all humanity. So let us stop here, and we will continue with verse 17 and probably go into then the next section, which is 18 through 32, basically the rest of chapter 1. So let us pray, and then we will get ready for worship.